0: Tonight we're looking at uh, our prophecy of Isaiah, and we're in chapter 22 and chapter 23 tonight. And uh, tonight we're going to get to the end of the section that we've been in for a few weeks now on the, uh, the oracles or the messages to the nations. And what's interesting about the last couple of messages that Isaiah directs to the nations is that he lumps... Jerusalem in with all the rest of the nations. It's kind of significant, isn't it? That you've had Isaiah giving a message of judgment against Babylon, against Assyria, against Egypt, against Cush, these different nations. And then in the middle of that, he takes chapter 22 to directly focus on Judah and Jerusalem. And I think that's significant because it reminds us that regardless of whether you are part of Israel or not, that God expects faithfulness. He expects uh, worship. He expects faith. And Israel in the north certainly had not. And Judah in the south, and for many times, had not expressed that faith and obedience to the Lord. And so a message of judgment comes to them as well. And so I think that's significant that uh, the way to relate to God is the same, whether you are a Jew or a Gentile. It's interesting that that's the case even in the Old Testament. And so he has a message of judgment against Jerusalem as well as against Tyre in chapter 23. And so chapter 22 is focused on Jerusalem and chapter 23 is focused on the city of Tyre. So let's look at chapter 22 And the message against uh, Jerusalem. Verses 1 through 14 describe uh, the siege of Jerusalem, in which the enemies surround it and threaten it. And so let's read these verses and then we'll talk a little bit about that. Verses 1 through 14. Isaiah says, A prophecy against the valley of vision. What troubles you now that you have all gone up on the roofs? Um, The Valley of Vision, later on as we read through the passage, we'll see that this is referring to Jerusalem. And what's interesting is that uh, Jerusalem was not regarded as a valley. Jerusalem was up on a hill. And so it might be kind of an irony, even maybe a, a sort of a satire in calling Jerusalem a valley. And also it might be a little bit of satire, a little bit of mock maybe, in calling Jerusalem a place of vision, where really they had not been clear-sighted in in following God, in seeing God's will for them. And so it, in referring to them as, as the Valley of Vision, it might be kind of a backhanded comment of, this is what you should be a place of vision, but you're not. And you're not lifted up on a hill, you've been brought low into a valley. And so they're about to be troubled, and they've gone up on the roofs uh, to see, right? Uh, back in the ancient world, uh, especially in the Middle East, uh, you had houses that were made out of uh, mud, brick. A lot of them were flat houses. And so people would go up on top of the house and you could actually, that's where a lot of even social gatherings would take place on top of the house. And you could, you could look out and see farther out. Uh, some of the ho- homes were actually built into the walls of the city. And so people are going up to see what's going on. It says, you, a town so full of commotion, you, a city of tumult and revelry, your slain were not killed by the sword, nor did they die in battle. Most of the commentators that I read suggested that the the event that is probably being referred to here is when Sennacherib, who is one of the generals of Assyria, comes and surrounds Jerusalem. You can read about it in the Book of Kings, and we're also going to see it described in narrative form in Isaiah 36 and 37. And so, this Assyrian general comes with all of his troops and surrounds Jerusalem. But the amazing thing about it is that that invasion, that that siege, doesn't succeed. God intervenes and sends it back, and sends Sennacherib back home. And so, this refers to those who have died. Maybe they died because of the siege, of being surrounded, maybe lack of food, maybe disease, but they were not killed by the sword because Sennacherib and his army did not get inside the city gates. All your leaders have fled together. They have been captured without using the bow. All you who were caught were taken prisoner together, having fled while the enemy was still far away. That's kind of a rebuke in the sense of Before the enemy even got there, some of the leaders, the ones who you're putting your trust in to lead you and to watch over you in difficult times, a lot of them fled. They head for the exit doors when they saw what was coming. And some of those who did flee were captured. Interestingly enough, those who stayed were rescued by the Lord. And when he pushed Sennacherib away and that invasion did not succeed, But those who got scared and fled, they were the ones who got captured. Verse four says, therefore, I said, turn away from me. Let me weep bitterly. Do not try to console me over the destruction of my people. So this is this is a a lament for the sake of Jerusalem because of what's happening to them because of their rebellion. Verse five, the Lord, the Lord Almighty has a day of tumult and trampling and terror in the valley of vision a day of battering down walls and of crying out to the mountains. So certainly it was going to be a time of fear, a time of terror. And you can read about that in, in the historical account in Kings and Isaiah 36 and 37. Uh, Hezekiah was scared. The people were scared. There, there was the threat of, of total destruction by the Assyrian army. Elam, Takes up the quiver with her charioteers and horses. Kir uncovers the shield. Uh, Probably these were areas north of uh, Israel, maybe in in the areas of Syria. And many think that they had joined up with Assyria and were perhaps um, factions or tribes that were allied with Assyria and coming down against Jerusalem. Your choicest valleys are full of chariots and horsemen are posted at the city gates. That is all the people that have surrounded the armies that have surrounded Jerusalem. The Lord stripped away the defenses of Judah. And you looked in that day to the weapons in the palace of the forest. So again, they're turning to their own resources, aren't they? Instead of turning to God. But the message all along from Isaiah, from the prophets has been trust God. He is your defender. You saw that the walls of the city of David were broken through in many places. You stored up water in the lower pool. So here is a clear reference to Jerusalem. Earlier it was called the Valley of Vision. Here the city of David is unmistakably Jerusalem. So that's that's where we link those together. It says you stored up water in the lower pool. Some believe this refers to um, the pool of Hezekiah. Um, in which he dug out the, the springs and created an aqueduct for water to come in in case of attack. And so this suggests that they were making preparations in advance for this siege that was going to happen. You counted the buildings in Jerusalem and tore down houses to strengthen the wall. So in other words, they're doing anything they can to put up defense to hold off the invading army. You built a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool, but you did not look to the one who made it or have regard for the one who planned it long ago. There's the key, isn't it? So in other words, you're doing all of this preparation and you're digging these aqueducts, you're, you're storing up water, you're taking materials from houses to reinforce the walls. You're doing all of this stuff and you're running around with all of this commotion But one thing you're not doing, Isaiah says, is you're not stopping and you're not trusting. You're not praying. You're not looking to the one who made it that has made these waters, made the earth. The one who planned it long ago, speaking of the sovereignty of God, isn't it? How God is sovereign over all of these things. The Lord, the Lord Almighty called you on that day to weep and to wail, to tear out your hair and put on sackcloth. Just images of repentance, images of mourning, lamenting. But see, there is joy and revelry, slaughtering of cattle and killing of sheep, eating of meat and drinking of wine. Let us eat and drink, you say, for tomorrow we die. In other words, instead of repentance, they were engaging in revelry. The Lord Almighty has revealed this in my hearing Till your dying day, this sin will not be atoned for, says the Lord, the Lord Almighty. In other words, um, because of their rebellion, there would need to be justice. And part of God's justice was bringing this army of the Assyrians to attack them. And there were, even though it was not ultimately successful and Jerusalem was not destroyed, there were losses and there was some destruction. There was some loss of life, and it was a part of God's discipline of his people. And then we see in verses 15 through 25, the rest of the chapter, really a contrast between two of the leaders in Jerusalem, Shebna and Eliakim. And this is a great lesson in in two different uh, portraits of leadership, one good, one bad. And we often see in Israel's history that the leaders set the direction. They set the tone, don't they? When a king of Israel is engaged in idolatry, the people often follow suit. When a good king comes and tries to make restoration and tries to bring repentance, the people a lot of times followed suit to the direction of the king. And here we have two different examples of leadership, two different sides of the coin. Shebna is an example of leadership for his own gain. Verses 15 through 19. This is what the Lord, the Lord Almighty says, go say to this steward, to Shebna, the palace administrator. So he's not the king, but he is a person of influence. Person high up on the chain of command in Jerusalem. What are you doing here and who gave you permission to cut out a grave for yourself here? Hewing your grave on the height and chiseling your resting place in the rock. Seems that what Shebna was doing is he was, instead of showing leadership to the people, instead of being a self-sacrificing servant leader to the people, he was more concerned about his own legacy. And so in order to maintain his legacy, he's building a grand um, memorial to himself built into the side of the mountain in the Kidron Valley. And almost kind of in the way that the Egyptian kings built pyramids uh, to memorialize themselves and show their greatness. Here's Shebna trying to do the same thing, building this great uh, mural to himself, basically. And God says, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Who gave you permission to do this? Beware, the Lord is about to take firm hold of you and hurl you away, you mighty man. Probably even there, kind of a little bit of satire in someone who thought he was so great, someone who thought he was so mighty, but nothing in comparison to the Lord, right? And the Lord can take his pride, his self-centeredness, and the Lord can just remove him. And throw him away. He will roll you up tightly like a ball and throw you into a large country. There you will die and there the chariots you were so proud of will become a disgrace to your master's house. So Shedna thought he was up on high. The Lord says, I'm going to humble you and I'm going to make you a prisoner in another place, in another country. I will depose you from your office and you will be ousted from your position. So this is a this is a common biblical theme, isn't it? That those who are high and exalted, those who lift themselves up in pride, God humbles, doesn't he? He brings them down. Those who are humble, God exalts. And so we see a different picture in Eliakim, verses 20 through 25. He is someone who led rightly and, and sought to lead in service to others. Verse 20, in that day, I will summon my servant, Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and fasten your sash around him and hand your authority over to him. He will be a father to those who live in Jerusalem and to the people of Judah. So God took Shebna and humbled his pride and replaced him with somebody else, replaced him with Eliakim and said, He's going to be a good example. He's going to be a father, protector, guider. Of the people of Jerusalem. I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Do those words sound familiar to you? If they do, it's because they come from Revelation. In Revelation, these words are used of Jesus Christ and his message to the churches. And this is. This is given as a description of the Lord Jesus Christ and his authority, this language here. So this is high, exalted language, isn't it? That God is entrusting to Eliakim with this much authority, this much respect, and he will have basically free reign to do and to lead in Jerusalem as he sees fit. And he will be a good example in doing so. I will drive him like a peg into a firm place. In other words, stability. Strength. He's not going to waver. He will become a seat of honor for the house of his father. All the glory of his family will hang on him, its offspring and offshoots, all its lesser vessels from the bowls to all the jars. And these, these are just um, metaphors, right? Images of Eliakim and his family. In that day, declares the Lord Almighty, the peg driven into the firm place will give way. It will be sheared off and will fall. And the load hanging on it will be cut down, the Lord has spoken. Now, what does that refer to? It is still talking about Eliakim, but probably what this is referring to in verse 25 is showing the limits of human leadership. In other words, Eliakim was a good leader, and and God established him and put him into a firm place in Jerusalem with honor and with authority. But there's only so much that a good leader can do. He only lasts so long. He can only live so long. He can only have influence so long. And so even a good leader is not the ultimate solution. What's the ultimate solution? Trusting in the Lord. Trusting in God. So that's the message to Jerusalem. And then we see a message to Tyre or against Tyre in chapter 23. Now, Tyre was a Phoenician city, so if you can imagine in your mind a, a picture of the Holy Land, you've got, you've got Israel kind of here, and over here you've got the Mediterranean Sea. And so right up uh, against the Mediterranean Sea, right on the border up north, is Tyre. It was, it was right there, and because it was right there on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, it became a very important uh, commercial center with uh, trade flowing through it. So trade coming on land to Tyre and then ships coming to Tyre and taking those goods elsewhere. And so it became a hub for all of this commerce and all of this wealth. It was a very influential city in that day. But here is God saying I exercise dominion over all. And Tyre is going to be brought down. No matter how wealthy and how established, how firm you think you are, when God decides to bring someone down, he can bring them down. And so there's a call to lament for the city of Tyre. A prophecy against Tyre: wail, you ships of Tarshish. Remember the the city Tarshish from the story of Jonah? Jonah was called by God to be a prophet to Nineveh, and Jonah said, No way, I'm going to Nineveh. And he got on a ship. And that ship was taking him to Tarshish, which at that time was probably the extent of the known world. Most people believe that Tarshish was as far as Spain. So you're talking about the the opposite end of the Mediterranean Sea, all the way on the edges. And, And so here's how far ships would come to Tyre to exchange goods and to engage in trade and commerce. And Isaiah as a prophet of the Lord, is telling Tarshish to wail, the ships of Tarshish. Why? Because Tyre is going to be brought down and its influence or the, the repercussions of that are going to be felt far and wide, even out as far away as Tarshish. For Tyre is destroyed and left without house or harbor. From the land of Cyprus, word has come to them. Cyprus was an island in the Mediterranean Sea. So word has come to them. Be silent, you people of the island, and you merchants of Sidon. Sidon is just a a city down the road from Tyre, also in Phoenicia, close there to the Mediterranean coast. So, be silent, you people of the island, you merchants of Sidon, whom the seafarers have enriched. There you can see their their wealth. They've been in this central place of commerce. They've been enriched by all this trade. But now it's time to be silent and lament. And mourn because of what's going to happen. On the great waters came the grain of the Shihor. The harvest of the Nile was the revenue of Tyre. And she became the marketplace of the nations. The great waters there are probably the Mediterranean Sea. So from all these different places, all of these goods came. And it became the marketplace of the nations. Be ashamed, Sidon, and you fortress of the sea, for the sea has spoken. I have neither been in labor nor given birth. I have neither reared sons nor brought up daughters. When word comes to Egypt, they will be in anguish at the report from Tyre. So all of these surrounding places are going to be in mourning and wailing because of the judgment that's going to fall on this very wealthy city, influential city. Cross over to Tarshish. Wail, you people of the island. Is this your city of revelry? the old, old city whose feet have taken her to settle in far-off lands. And so this is, a, this is a very old city. And from some of the things that I read, uh, Tyre had been a place of influence for many, many generations. And even through um, the, uh, the rise and fall of Assyria and then of Babylon, Tyre would go back and forth between their control, and Babylon and Assyria would get... Uh, Revenue and tax money from Tyre. But this city stood until the days of Alexander the Great. In the days of Alexander the Great, it was destroyed. And so eventually its fall did come, its destruction. So verses 8 through 18 talk about Tyre's judgment and its future. Who planned this against Tyre? the bestower of crowns, whose merchants are princes, whose traders are renowned in the earth. So that's a good question, isn't it? Who planned this? The Lord Almighty planned it to bring down her pride in all her splendor and to humble all who are renowned on the earth. This is a a renewed look at the sovereignty of God, isn't it? That that God plans something and it happens. And he can do it with any nation that he chooses, any city, no matter how big, no matter how strong, no matter how mighty of an army, no matter how much money in its bank account, no matter how influential it is, God can humble it. And he is sovereign among the nations till your land as they do along the Nile daughter Tarshish for you no longer have a harbor. In other words, you ship, ship of Tarshish, you don't have anywhere to go anymore because God's going to bring Tyre down. The Lord has stretched out his hand over the sea and made its kingdoms tremble. He has given an order concerning Phoenicia that her fortresses be destroyed. He said, no more of your reveling, virgin daughter Sidon, now crushed. Up, cross over to Cyprus. Even there, you will find no rest. And so even if you were to flee, get on ships and move over into the Mediterranean Sea to the island of Cyprus, the trouble is still going to follow you because the Lord is going to humble you. Look at the land of the Babylonians, this people that is now of no account. The Assyrians have made it a place for desert creatures. They raised up their siege towers. They stripped its fortresses bare and turned it into a ruin. Wail, you ships of Tarshish, your fortress is destroyed. Because of verse 13, most people think that the the judgment that is coming on Tyre is going to come during the time of the Assyrian kingdom. Because it's talking about a time of Assyrian dominance in which Assyria had taken Babylon and made it uh, a servant to its own kingdom. And so this is probably near to the time of Isaiah, just a little ways off. And Assyria, in in establishing its strength, is going to rain down terror on Tyre, this city. At that time, Tyre will be forgotten for 70 years, the span of a king's life. But at the end of these 70 years, it will happen to Tyre as in the song of the prostitute. Now, some people they debate the the significance of the year seventy there, uh, because also of significance is the fact that uh, Judah's uh, captivity, their exile in Babylon, was also spoken of as seventy years by Jeremiah the prophet. But this seems to be not coinciding with that seventy years. This seems to be before that, during the the empire of Assyria, and. The verse even describes the significance of seventy. It is talking about basically the the reign or the the length of a long reign of a king. Or or sometimes seventy is used symbolically as a symbol of fullness or completeness. In other words, the full time when God has established it. That's how long it's going to be forgotten. He's going to humble it and bring it down. Take up a harp, a walk through the city. You forgotten prostitute, play the harp well, sing many a song, so that you will be remembered. It's it's kind of a a mock, and it's so it's not speaking of Tyre in good terms, is it? And using this analogy of a prostitute, and so even in this song that it's it's quoting, it it's almost like try to remember your former glory if you can, but you're not going to be able to. So it's kind of a mock in this song. At the end of the 70 years, the Lord will deal with Tyre. She will return to her lucrative prostitution and will ply her trade with all the kingdoms on the face of the earth. So it's a metaphor, isn't it? Uh, This idea of prostitution is a metaphor for all of its dealings with all the nations of the world and how Tyre had become uh, a, a hub city marketplace city where all the people came and brought their, their goods for exchange and commerce. And so it's using that as a metaphor. And so the Lord's going to humble it, but even after humbling it, Tyre is not going to learn its lesson and is going to seek to go back doing things just like they did before. Yet her profit and her earnings will be set apart for the Lord They will not be stored up or hoarded. Her prophets will go to those who live before the Lord for abundant food and fine clothes. And that's where the prophecy ends. And so some have, verse 18 is, it's hard to interpret. It's hard to know exactly when this is, what this is talking about. Because everything else in the whole chapter about Tyre has been about God's judgment on her. And because of God's judgment on the city of Tyre, it is assumed that Tyre has been a wicked city. It's been a wicked city. It's been idolatrous, pagan, um, money hungry, uh, covetous, seeking wealth. And yet there's this verse at the very end that talks about her profits now being stored up for the Lord. And so one way of understanding that is that the city of Tyre has been conquered. And so that now all of its revenue, all of its profits flow back to Jerusalem, maybe with Jerusalem as dominant. That's one way of understanding it. Another way of understanding it is just thinking about this in a very future-looking way of when all of the nations have their focus on God. Kind of like we saw in uh, Egypt and uh, Assyria back in the last couple of chapters where we saw Egypt and Assyria worshiping God and honoring him. And so there is going to be a time when Egypt, pagan, polytheistic, Assyria, pagan, polytheistic, they're going to come and worship together the one true and living God. And so in the context of the larger section of Isaiah, maybe that's what this is referring to, is a time when Tyre will also be included in that great future turning, if you will, great future time in which, God rules and all the nations have their focus on him. And so it could be looking at that, which is a a very interesting way to finish a a prophecy of judgment with this little ray of hope at the end. And that's the end of this whole section of chapter 13 to 23 that looked at the messages to the nations. And if I were to kind of, wrap up this whole section and maybe could put a couple of big idea points on it um, I would say one is that clearly all of these oracles, all these messages communicate the sovereignty of God that, that God almost like a, a master, sovereign infinite chess player is, is moving the pieces around the way that he wants to and he's arranging history according to his sovereign will now, it's not a great analogy because there are still real human people involved, doing real human things, and they're making their own decisions, and, and people are making alliances, and armies are attacking other countries, and it's all going on in this human level, in the, in the level of history and of mankind. But behind it all is God, sovereignly directing all of these things. And so Babylon does his bidding. Assyria ultimately does his bidding. Tyre and Sidon ultimately do his bidding. The Lord is sovereign. And when he wants to judge a nation, when he wants to take a proud, rich, powerful nation and bring it down, he will. And he is sovereign enough to do that. But also we've seen scattered throughout all of these chapters, on, and most of it about judgment, right? So most of it about judgment. But we've seen scattered throughout all of these chapters in messages to the nations, uh, little windows of grace, little little glimpses of hope of of mercy from god of turning to him in worship and receiving his blessing and so even in the midst of judgment there are uh, gifts of mercy and opportunities of mercy and so uh, very very powerful messages And and several points, several uh, applications that can still apply to us today.